From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. Recording live at Days of the Dead in Los Angeles, overlooking the glamorous Los Angeles International Airport. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. So it's a special live event with an audience, as you hear, and our guests are David Howard Thornton, Art the Clown himself, and Damien Leone, director, writer-director of the Terrifier movies. So, so we're here to have a good time. We're here to find out. We'll talk about things that we love. We're at a horror convention. And what could be a better place for us to talk about our passion for this genre? So, Damien, how did it start for you? Your, your mother was a horror fan, right? Correct. That's really, it goes back to my mother naming me after The Omen. Wow. Yeah. Naming me after The Omen. She was uh, loved movies, loved horror, was obsessed with that name when she saw the movie for some reason. And it had to be spelled the way it was spelled in the movie. So she with the go, E-N. Had to be an E, <laughs> yeah. And then she just introduced me to... You know, I knew where my name came from at a very young age, and she would let me watch horror movies, and just not necessarily horror movies, but they could be R-rated movies, action movies. Like we watched Beastmaster, Red Sonja, uh, Rambo. She took me to see RoboCop in the movie theaters when I was four. I mean, that's the one of my wow. favorite. That had a huge impact. This on was me. a very liberal house. Ve- yes, very. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you take off your hat so we can see if there are three sixes on there? <laughs> oh, okay. That must They're have been makeup. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I but, thought about getting that tattoo. I did, but I, I decided. If you're going to get tattooed, that seems right, to be the, the one. one. Yeah. The one. So uh, that was where your love for the genre started. Do you remember the first horror movie that you saw that really had an impact on you? Yeah, Jaws. And it's still my favorite wow. movie of all time. Wow. Yeah. So Jaws, and then uh, she took me to see The Lost Boys in the movie theaters when I was wow. four, and that wow. is still, that had a huge impact on me. Four for you was 12 for most right. of us. Right, I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would, I would bring the, uh, my friends who were not allowed to watch those movies. They'd come over to my house, and we'd sneak in my room, and I'd put the VHS tapes in, their parents had no idea what I was showing them, Toxic Avenger, when we were like seven. Horror <laughs> should crushed. be illicit, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, yeah. but it was, it was really... Um, because I was a huge fan and I gravitated toward the slashers uh, and I would rent all the VHS tapes and at the beginning of Friday the 13th part 6 VHS tape it had the coming attractions to Screen Greats which is a uh-huh. documentary on Tom Savini and it's the first time I saw right. what a makeup artist the did Fangoria the, the Fangoria yeah. one and that a man created all these monsters that I already knew and I loved and I was like oh my god this is artwork I understood what it was and I just really gravitated toward that and when I got a little older I actually she took me to meet Tom Savini at a horror convention, Chiller, uh, Chiller uh, in Convention New Jersey, in Jersey. Yeah. 
so starstruck. I got to meet him. He was so cool. And coincidentally, a vendor was selling starter Ben Nye makeup kits. Wow. And I bought that and a, a bottle of mint. Ben Nye was a, a studio makeup guy at Universal, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, correct. Uh, for, for years back in the 40s Legendary and 50s. Legendary yeah. yeah. And, uh, and a bottle of mint-flavored blood. And I, <laughs> went, uh, and I went home and I just, when I opened that kit, that was the f first day of the rest of my life. And I just started putting all that makeup on myself, creating cuts, putting them on my friends and sending them home to their parents. Their parents had no idea I was messing with makeup effects. So we were, I was really freaking them out and getting that rush from a, uh, fooling a parent was just the, the greatest thing ever. So that all led into filmmaking, but it was really special effects first. Yeah, uh, uh, amazing. Well, David, how did it start for you? You were in Huntsville, Alabama. You were in New York, Damien, Correct. so that made it a little more media accessible. accessible yeah. Huntsville, Alabama, <laughs> how does that lead to you being here in Los Angeles promoting yeah, your movies? Yeah, that's a little bit different from his. Because <laughs> I also came from a household where we didn't really watch horror movies. My dad would watch them late at night on like, you know, sci-fi or something like that. But uh, like my mom was a big chicken, so she thought The Fall of the House of Usher was the scariest movie ever made. And fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Roger Corman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Vincent Price. I, I do remember though, like when I was a kid, they they had a we had just gotten a VCR in early '80s, and it was when Poltergeist came out on VHS, and so they had a watch party of Poltergeist over at our house. Of course, I was like a little kid at the time, and I was That's put to bed. That's how I yeah. met Toby Hooper. I was yes. doing publicity on Poltergeist. Oh my god. But it was the, they had the watch party, and I snuck out of bed, and I, I was watching the movie over, like, the, I pulled up a chair, was watching it over, like, the counter or something like that, and the whole, the, the clown strangulation scene came up, and that freaked me out, and that, of course, you know, exposed me to everybody there, that I was, I was there, and I was like, oh, no, no, so that was my first time ever seeing a horror movie. That kind of traumatized my mom. Used that movie to get me to behave too, because she's like, <laughs> I used to sit right in front of the TV as a kid and block everything. And my mom's like, if you sit in front of the TV like that, if you sit too close, you're gonna get pulled into the Caroline TV. is gonna drag you in. <laughs> yeah, and for years I would like, and if the TV was on, I would walk a wide berth around the TV. But that, it's interesting yeah. that the clown was such a, an integral yeah, it, part it's of kind the of, is it Between that and I also had an old Mego figure of the Joker from back uh, in the day. And that, that figure used to freak me out for a while. So it's, it's funny. That the, but now clowns don't scare me. I, I think I got that fear out as a now kid. Now that you're the scariest clown out <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. It's ther art therapy, really. Ah, <laughs> excellent. So Damien, why do you think clowns can be so scary? It's a great question, and now, of course, because I'm surrounded by clown culture, which I never, I never <laughs> expected to happen in my life. Um, I've Killer always, clowns tried. Yeah, I'm always trying to analyze that, and uh, I think something that's so simple and gets overlooked big time is the impact of a white face. Yeah. Because I think if you have a clown that doesn't have the white face makeup, they're nowhere near as scary. Nowhere near. And I think it's the reason why Linda Blair's face is so horrifying in The Exorcist is there's something, a white face, it's immediately subconsciously synonymous with death. So I think that's a big it's part of it. It's bloodless, yeah. Bloodless, right. No red pigment. Right? Immediately your mind goes to, okay, that is a dead person that should not be looking at me and smiling. Yeah, so that's, that right there is just very creepy. And there's just something so abnormal and alien about the way they move and always being happy it's just it's so freaky and disturbing and if you put a knife in that person's hand and they're coming at you i mean that's a recipe for that's nightmare fuel right there i mean um, good for both of you yeah <laughs> very much so <laughs> so but you started doing makeup effects tell me about how that began were you doing just things like you were talking about scaring neighbors and parents and that sort of thing how did that translate into a career of actually doing these professionally well, I could tell you the first thing that I ever learned how to do was messing with liquid latex, and it was very simple. I would put a very thin layer on my face where it was just basically you're putting a layer of glue, and without, without powdering it, I would fold the skin on top of itself and make this great gash, a great seam. And it was like literally seamless, flawless. You could look at it, be this close, and it just looks like a cut. And then oh, I was that's like a Lon Chaney senior yeah, thing. Yeah. Exactly, very old school, very simple. And I put a trickle of blood, and I did that on every one of my friends' faces. And like I said, and we sent them home to their parents saying we were playing football, and they cut their face on the license plate. And we freaked out every parent. I mean, one <laughs> one 
parent, my friend Rob, his father had just gotten home from work, and we did that. And he's like, literally started cursing at him. He's like, Jesus Christ. He's like, I just got home. Now I got to take you to the goddamn emergency room. And, and we were just dying. It was so amazing. We got such a rush. Um, but then my buddy's father had a camcorder and lent it to us. And then I was trying to do, I was trying to replicate all these Tom Savini gags with the camera. And then that turned into um, making short horror films like every other filmmaker with all my buddies. And then when I was in, when I got out of high school, I didn't have money to go to film school. But my mother uh, gave me enough money to take a film class at New School University. And it was just an introductory aesthetics of directing class where it's just film theory and, and whatnot. And we're watching all foreign movies. And there was this uh, one assignment where we had to make a two-minute a uh, short film with no dialogue, just action. And that didn't mean action, like an action movie. It just had to right. be... Right, not uh, crashing cars. Cor yeah. Correct. But being me, I'm like, all right, I'm going to make this uh, as bloody and as crazy as possible. So we had, uh, I had two of my friends having a knife fight. I had just got a, uh, there was a snowstorm, and we went in the cemetery behind my house, and I filmed them having this really bloody knife fight with, like, Raging Bull-type blood spray every time, <laughs> like Kurosawa blood. And it freaked out. Like, the class was like, whoa, that they were making all these artsy two-minute videos, and then all of a sudden it's these two guys slicing each other up and blood flying everywhere. And it left an impression on the teacher in that class who was I also bet. <laughs> yeah, who was also an aspire, uh, aspiring filmmaker himself. And then, you know, I didn't go to that school anymore. And then about a year later, he emailed me and he said, hey, I remembered your short film. I remembered the blood. It was really cool. He's like, I'm making a movie. I need some special effects. He's like, do you still do that? Would you be interested? And I was like, hell yeah. I was like, I was like out of high school doing nothing. You know, I didn't. And this was money. a professional movie being made. Yeah, yeah. Professional, yeah. low budget yeah, film. Yeah, it's called Love. But yeah, it was, uh, yeah, but it was, uh, it was cool. So that was my first time working on a, um, on an actual movie. Uh, and then it was just all word of mouth there. Uh, people would recommend me, refer me to other, other filmmakers. And I was, so I was freelancing doing makeup effects for a while. So David, um, were you a horror fan as a kid? I, I was late to the game because yeah. of my mom's fear. So, but uh, I, I finally got into it my senior year of high school when Scream 2 came out. Because ah. uh, everybody was wanting to go see it. I was doing a show at the time, a, a play. I was doing, like, I think it was the, A Christmas Carol. And my cast wanted to go out and see Scream 2. And there was a girl in the cast I had a crush on. And I'm like, she's like, Are you going to come? I'm like, God, I can't chicken out in front of this girl. So I, I'm like, Okay, fine, 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 fine. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. And I had a blast. I was like, oh my God, why is my mom so afraid of all this kind of stuff? And, and I was like, well, you know, I, I can't really watch these at home because mom doesn't like them. But um, next year in college, yeah, that's when you're 18, change. you don't want to tell people because my yeah. mom doesn't want. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like I'll just wait, I'll wait. And so like, um, and my buddy that I was my roommate in uh, college, he was one of my best friends in high school. He came from a very strict Southern Baptist, you know, family too. So he never watched any of this stuff. And we're like, we're in college now, we can do whatever we want. So we would go every weekend and just rent a whole stack of tapes, and we'll just do each weekend like a different um, series. So we'd do like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, and we'd do like you know Friday Thirteenth, all like you know Shining, all that. Just do all this. We had fun. We had fun, and we just caught up on everything we had been missing out on. So you met a friend who you could share that with. Yeah. So many horror fans, and I would imagine most of the people here were outcasts and did not have a whole lot of friends who could share in that love of genre. Damien, it sounds like you had plenty of people who were into it that you could peel their faces off and things like that. <laughs> they didn't have a choice. <laughs> I just tortured all my friends. But they, um, they weren't into horror. You know, I was lucky that I grew up with a, a nice amount of kids my age in my neighborhood. Um, but they were into sports and all those traditional things that you're into. But so I was the, I was the monster kid. I was the, yeah. the outcast of my, my group. But they loved, especially when we got into um, making the short films, they loved that. I mean, you know, when you're a kid, when you're 12 years old, 13, you, there's not many things you could do to pass the time. So they loved just like making movies, going into the woods, getting covered in blood. They thought it was a cool way to pass some time. Um, but yeah, they really didn't have a choice. I mean, I was just <laughs> <laughs> like, I need a monster. I need to turn you into a zombie. Well, what is it about fear, horror movies in particular, that sparks you? I mean, I've had the passion from a very, very young age as well. I like all kinds of movies, but I'm drawn especially to the genre and especially in making genre films. Yeah. I, I, I think that there, I, I love, first of all, I love 
visuals. And I love, I gravitate toward creatures in particular, monsters, just things that are not of this earth. Like I'm not so much interested in, although I appreciate something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Ah, right? Great film. Great movie. But that's very close to home. Like I'd much rather the the, the fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. I'd rather you know the shark and jaws, even though that's a you know. But you know, Godzilla, King Kong, monsters. And, I just yeah. really took a liking to them. I love just otherworldly things. They fascinated me. Um, but there's also something deeper, uh, something cathartic that everybody, you know, understands. Where it's you're, you're conquering the fears that we deal with every day, and that. You know, when you when you leave the house, you know, we don't think about it, but this could be your last time leaving the house. I mean, and we're played with that every day, every time. Thanks we, for putting that <laughs> in my head right now. <laughs> you know, and, and but these uh, horror movies definitely help with that. There is so much violence and horror in real life, and I think we just need a way to uh, kind of cope with that, and that, that's a, that's a way to do it. As a performer, what do you? Uh, everybody seems to want to be the villain. Art the Clown is the most colorful character in, in a movie. The villain is always the most colorful character. How do you approach that? I, I love Because nobody playing, feels yeah. they're bad people in no, real life. No, it's, uh, yeah. That's, that's actually a trait of a lot of villains I like are the villains that don't realize they're the villain. It's like they think they're, uh, what, what they're doing is, you know, altruistic. They're doing it for the betterment of, you know, themselves or society or something like that. But then you also have those villains that know they are the villain. And like they art revel. the clown. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's art. That's art. He knows he's a villain. He's like, you know, like how the Joker is. He knows he's a villain. He, he knows what a joke the world really is. And he's just like, you know what? I'm going to embrace this side of me, and I'm going to have fun. And that's, that's what art is like as well. Now, and it's, it's, it's very freeing in a lot of ways to be able to play a character like that. I, I, I have fun with it. it it's, because I'm able to do things I would never do as myself, and I know I'm able to do them in ways that were, you know, it's it's fantasy, so I know I'm actually not gonna be hurting anybody or anything like that. But it's 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 weird. It's a kind of therapeutic in some ways because like if you're having a bad day or something like that, then like well, let's do a little kill scene where you do something like that. And you just like get that frustration out like that. Oh yeah, they'll do that sometimes to me. It's like just pretend this is such and such and so and so. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, well, you oh, also have, you also have makeup on. Yeah. And that, when you look at yourself in the makeup trailer, in the mirror, uh, as you're about to go into it, I mean, you don't see David, oh, no. you see art. No. And, and it's got to be so freeing and emancipating. It, it really is. It, and it's because I, I've always hated playing characters that are like myself. I, I, that's one of the things I, I really, it just not just horror, but just acting in general, is it's, it's escapism for the artist. It's like you can be someone else. And it, and it, it goes back to my, my uh, younger years when I was bullied a lot or like uh, the years after my mom passed away from cancer. That's how I escaped the pain I was dealing with. I was like, I'm able to, for a few hours in rehearsal or on stage, escape the, 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 the trauma that I'm going through in my own life and to be someone else, but also bring joy and, and merriment and fun to other people. And it's, it's, it's very freeing in that way. Well, there's a lot to be said for the therapeutic value of the horror movie. And it is particularly appealing to a younger audience because they still feel immortal. They've not been approached by death. They've not been touched by death and mortality. And the whole idea of whistling past the graveyard is a very valid one. But it's also a way to confront your fears in the safest possible manner. You go into a movie theater and you play tag with your fears and you're not it. You know? It's it's the thrill of the hunt. I mean, it's very primal. It's still in us. So you And I think we still want that. We yearn for that. But... Um, See, you know, you don't want to suffer the consequences, right? You don't want exactly. to get eaten by the, the animal in the jungle. But watching a horror movie, you get to feel that thrill, but then you can walk out and go back, go back yeah, home and you're, like you're safe in your bed. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. the roller coaster. You get on this terrifying ride, but you know you're going to be okay. Exactly. Yeah. So what about that transition from makeup effects guy? What was the point where you finally said, it's time for me to make my own movie? Yeah, so after, um, again, after high school, it's like I couldn't go to film school, and it's like, you know, I knew I wanted to do this with my life. I knew I wanted to make movies. There was nothing else I could do. Um, so I said, I need to, since I can't go to film school, 
I need to make a film that's going to be my calling card, basically. And hopefully I could showcase what I could do as a director and as a makeup effects artist. I'll make this, I'll put it into some festivals, and hopefully somebody likes it and Hollywood comes knocking on my door. Like, that was the, that was the mindset, of course. Right. Um, didn't quite happen like that, but what did happen was it was the first time I created Art the Clown in this short film. And this was why I call it my throwing shit at the wall short film. It was called <laughs> The Ninth Circle. Basically, almost like everything else I do, it did not have much of a plot, and it was just visual, horror visuals, basically. But it was me sort of throwing all these archetypes and tropes that I loved into it, and a lot of makeup effects, and just hoping something just stuck. And Art was in the first three minutes. He sets up the short film, and he's basically harassing, terrorizing this woman who's waiting for a train. So you did everything. You wrote it, you directed it, and you did the makeup yes, effects. Yes, yeah. And... Um, People, when, once they saw it, you know, they said, wow, you know, that was cool. The, the effects were cool, the creatures, the monsters. And everybody said, that clown, though, that clown at the beginning is so friggin' creepy. He's so Were you cool. in the short, David? No, no, it was actually, yeah, it was uh, my, my buddy Mike, who was, again, one of these friends that didn't have a choice. I said, I need a clown. <laughs> I have a moldier face. I'm like, you're playing this. He's like, I don't, I don't act. I'm like, you just got to sit there and smile. I'm like, Charles, but you could do it. So he got roped into playing the original Art the Clown, and he did a really good job. But everybody just who, who I showed that said, you have to keep making more things with that clown. There's, there's something there. And, uh, and I did. And I just kept making more short films. And I just kept, he was my North Star that I just kept following. I knew there was something there. But the world of independent film is really tough to crack, especially today. Um, there are so many filmmakers, you would know their name, you'd know them well, who can't make their living off of the movies that they make because of the various platforms and, you know, the the independent distributors will pick up a $3 million movie for $50,000. Yep. Tell me how you made that step to making the feature film. Yes, yeah, so it was the first short film, then I made another short film with Art the Clown, uh, where I really fleshed him out and really turned him into a slasher and I really started to understand who he was. And that was called Terrifier and that now was gonna be the official Art the Clown calling card and trying to get somebody to give me money to turn that into a feature. Did not happen that way for a long time. Again, and this, because just to try and encourage a lot of people come up to me and they think Terrifier is an overnight success. <laughs> I created Art the Clown in 2005 in that first short film. I was still delivering flowers writing Terrifier 2. That was my nine to five job when I wasn't freelancing or doing something. Flowers, so, <laughs> monsters, flowers, <laughs> monsters. I, I, don't I know. make no right sense. Right brain, I left brain. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like Frankenstein's <laughs> monster. With <them>. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, I'll, try, I'll try and make this quick because it was a long journey. So nothing, nothing really happened with those short films. They were in a couple of festivals. And then I was like, all right, YouTube was sort of a new thing back then. This is like 2010. It wasn't what it is now. Uh, so I just threw them on there. And Terrifier in particular started getting a lot of views considering it was back then. It was a 20-minute short film. had like over 100,000 views. And this uh, indie producer contacted me having seen it. And he said, I'm making a horror anthology. Uh, based on Halloween shorts that I'm finding on YouTube that are already made. He said, I love your clown. I want him to be the poster of this movie. So I was like, yeah, I have this other short with him too. And then he wanted to use other filmmakers. I wound up talking him into just letting me be the only filmmaker and giving me some extra funds to go uh, pad out the movie, which we did. And that was called All Hallows' Eve. It was never something I wanted to make, but it was the first time I got a movie picked up and distributed. It was in Redbox and Walmarts and things like that. So I thought that was the coolest thing ever at that point. So then I always wanted to just keep making Terrifier the feature. That was always the goal. And even him, you know, he said, I'll never forget this, I tried to get him to give me the money. And he said, I've been reaching around, you know, reaching out, asking people. He said, the unanimous note I keep getting is clowns can't sell a movie. Right? <laughs> and I was like, oh man, you know. Since I was, when? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was very, very disheartening. So then nobody wanted to give me money for it. And, uh, you know, platforms now were like uh, fundraising, like Kickstarter and Indiegogo were starting to come about. So I said, I'll try it that way. So I was going to try and raise money for Terrifier. And I sent out the Kickstarter campaign to everybody I knew in my emails, my contacts. And a buddy of mine, Phil Falcone, who's now my producing partner, I'd uh, done special effects for a movie he worked on. We had a really good time, uh, had a good relationship. 
I sent it to him, and he calls me on the side, just calls me up, and he goes, what are you trying to do here? I'm like, he's like, you're asking for like $15,000. You're trying to make a feature film. He's like, how much do you think you could really make this movie for? What do you need? I was like, honestly, I was like, I made the short for like five, five grand. I maxed out a credit card. I said, you know, make that into an 80-minute movie, probably $30,000, $35,000. I could probably make this movie. He goes, I'll give you the money tomorrow. He goes, I just want to hang out with you while you're doing all the special effects. He's like, hopefully I could learn something. And he gave me the money the next day. 30K film school. $35,000 film yeah. school. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, so that was huge. That was, that was everything. I mean, that was the true beginning because if I hadn't met that guy, who knows? If I hadn't met Phil, might not be here right now. Probably wouldn't. Um, and then so that, that was, but again, it wasn't an easy road, even then making that movie, but then trying to get distribution for that. Was, was tough. Nobody wanted the movie. People wanted to cut it. They didn't want to pay for it. Uh, and it's just sticking to your guns eventually. Um, where finally I found a distributor who was willing to pay us something I thought was reasonable and keeping it intact. Uh, so they picked it up. The company was Epic. And uh, what wound up happening that really helped the us... The parent of Dread Central. Yes, there. exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what wound up happening was they sold it to... After like two years, they wound up getting it to Netflix... And then once it went on Netflix, then it got in front of a lot of eyes and a lot of people started uh, becoming fans of it and seeing it that way. Right? We hear it all the time that people, they never heard of it and they're scrolling through Netflix and then they just saw Art's face and they're like, I have to see what's going on there. Just the availability on the streaming platforms. Yeah, there you go. Now, David, what were the roles you imagined yourself playing when you first became an actor? <laughs> Not this one. <laughs> No, exactly. no, because I, 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 yeah, I, I never even imagined I would be doing horror films at all. I always, because I'm like, I, I, I've always been honest with my physique. I was like, if I'm ever going to do a horror film, I'm going to be one of the victims like Randy or something like that. So I'm like, no one's going to ever cast me as the villain. I'm like, no, as much as I love playing villains, I'm like, nah, but nah. But what just were you, what was your ambition? What were the well, characters? The irony yeah. of this is he's a, the man of a thousand voices. Mm -hmm. He's Mr. Cartoon Voice. Yeah. And I right. took away 50% <laughs> of his, like, you know, his Well, yeah, you do a kit. lot of games. Yeah. You do a lot of uh, vo voiceover work. work. That's, that's yeah. what I really want to do. I wanted to do a lot of animation. Yeah, that's and, how I got my sad yeah. card, was doing voices for the Pink Panther. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> New news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I, that was one of the big things I wanted to do, because I, I as, a, as a kid, that's when I learned, when I, Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out, that's when I learned uh. about Mel Blanc doing all the voices for all the Looney Tune characters, and I learned about Dawes Butler and uh, Don Messick, and I was like, oh my God, these guys do all of these voices. That's Awesome, and I, I just discovered I had a knack for mimicry. And so, as a child, I was just doing voices for like uh, just every all my action figures from Ninja Turtles and all that kind of stuff. And I just, anytime I heard an interesting voice, I'm like, I got to learn how to do that. And I just, I was just cultivating a, a skill set over the years. And I was like, ah, that's what I should do. I should, you know, I should try to get into voiceover work. And I also was a musical theater guy, so I. I I wanted to, that's why I moved to New York instead of L.A. I wanted to go up to New York and be on Broadway. And I never got to actual Broadway, but I did tour with uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas the Musical for five wow. years. So that's, wow. uh, so that, that was a lot of fun to do. I was um, the understudy for the wonderfully talented uh, Stephen Carl, who was Robbie Rotten from the show Lazy Town. And nice. he was a great mentor for me because I, I, all my life I'd done a lot of physical comedy. Uh, that was my thing. I, I, I also had a great... Um, education in great physical comedians as a child. My, my parents had me watching the Chaplin movies, Marx Brothers, all that kind of stuff. Clowning and mime you know? and all of those yeah, yeah. things. And I, I did a lot of community theater, a lot of children's theater, because children love physical comedy. They're more into the physical than the, the, the verbal comedy. And so all those years, I was just kind of just honing my skills. And people always ask me, because there's a rumor out there that I went to mime school. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I just learned from my betters and adapted, especially like my aunt gifted me a box set of uh, Mr. Bean videos when I was oh, a teenager. Great. And I was just, inf just infatuated with that kind of character. I love that idea of a, a silent, mischievous character that just... He's like a, 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 an adult child, but you know, a total brat. And I'm like, I, I love that idea. And I always wanted a, a chance to play a character like that. And so when I, I saw All Hallows' Eve, before I even knew about Terrifier, this is like a year or so before the auditions for Terrifier, and I, I saw All Hallows' Eve, and I saw Art and that, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's kind of like a, 
um, Evil Mr. Bean. I was like, what a fun character. I would love to play a character like that one day. That would be, that would be a, such an interesting, I was like, okay, I, maybe something like that that could work for horror. I'm like, I, I don't know. I, who knows if, you know, I don't know, but that would be fun. <laughs> and then the audition for Terrifier came up, and I'm like, oh, my God, because they were looking for a tall, skinny guy with you know, experience in physical comedy or clowning. And I'm like, this is perfect. I, I want to do this, and this would be a, a fun way to uh, change up the game in some ways. And, and, and So, Damien, this very gentle guy here, <laughs> when he comes in to audition for you, tell me the transformation from David to Art. I knew I wanted him right away as soon as I saw him walk into the room because uh, my buddy Mike who played him, <laughs> again, I, it, it wasn't necessarily like starting from scratch or traditional um, casting method. This was, this was my friend that I knew and I already had his face mold and he was accessible and I said, you know, I need this clown because I, I knew I wanted to sculpt a prosthetic for him. And like I said, he kind of just got roped into playing him. But now that he, again, and he's not an actor, so he, I did give him the opportunity to play Art the Clown in Terrifier, but he just didn't want to act, uh, you know, it's just not his cup of tea. So now that I had to start from scratch, I said, I want somebody who's taller and thinner, like much thinner, because they're going to look way creepier. Uh, and then <laughs> David was this, about the sixth person to come into the audition. As soon as he walked into the room and I saw him, I said, and he had this big smile. I said, ooh, he's going to look really good in that prosthetic. Uh, <laughs> and then he's like, they didn't have sides or anything. I think just the casting call online was, uh, you're, you're here for a killer clown or whatever, for a horror feature. Uh, he's like, well, I didn't have any sides. What am I supposed to do? He's like, and I'm like, well, don't worry. You don't speak. I said, I just really need to see you uh, act as if you're decapitating somebody, but do it in a very like gleeful manner. You're having a great time. And that was, that was it. And he's like, so oh, the miming oh. and clowning had, was good homework. Yes, and then um, that's it. I mean, on action, he just morphed into what you see now as Art the Clown with all this theatricality and the sort of Jim Carrey Grinch and all these like the kind of like more like the mask kind of stuff he's doing. But I just saw now, oh my God, like this is a this is a real actor now. This is a theatrical actor who can bring so much more to the character that I ever envisioned originally. Originally, Art's played very straight. He's more just like a man dressed as a clown, whereas now David turned him into a clown. A so character. I, a character. Yeah. And I said, you know, we could have a lot of fun with this. Like, and, and that's what we do. I mean, like, Dave could bring him to an 11, and I have to maybe reel him back to a 5 or something. I don't want him to do any clown. That's your job. Like, right, yeah. exactly. But now I have this whole spectrum of wonderful performance to choose from that I didn't have there originally. So I just knew it was going to be amazing. And I basically shut the, the audition down after that. It was me and Phil in the room watching. We were getting a kick out of what he was doing. And when he left, I, I turned to Phil. I said, what else are we really looking for here? I was like, that's like everything I want. I was like, let's have him come back and put the prosthetic on him and have him do that all over again and that that's what we did with a pizza delivery guy <laughs> yeah that was fun <laughs> well, well tell me about your first day on the set where the movie is actually in production you're coming out of makeup and you're walking onto the set what was the first scene you shot uh that was that was i think do you remember the first scene the fir I, I think it was, it was you actually walking up the street was yeah. it no, it was, it was me uh, walking down the stairs pursuing uh, Tara in the, the garage with the cars. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was a, this was my first time really doing film work, too. I had done extra work, but never anything of this nature. And so I was very nervous. Because I, I was in a, I felt like... You've never been in a production this big before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, this was a non-union show, non-DGA, non-WGA, non-SAG, right. yeah. all of that. So all bets are off. This Anything was, yeah. goes. This Anything. was oh, Sam yeah. Raimi, Evil Dead 1. I mean, this yeah. was as guerrilla filmmaking mm -hmm. as you could possibly be. Yeah, in this very, very dilapidated building in Trent, New Jersey, that is like, oh, my God, this place was disgusting. But I mean, it's, it's the Garden State. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was. It could definitely turn into a garden one day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was very uh, unnerving for me because I, everybody else on that set had worked on sets before, so I was the newbie, and right. I was like, oh my gosh! And I, of course, being like basically the face of the franchise, you know, it didn't know it was going to be a franchise at the time, but still, I was like, I, you know, a lot of this rests on me, and I'm like, I. But you're also hitting marks and doing things you yeah. don't do the same way in the yeah, theater. Cause I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm so used to theater, you know, it's like where you rehearse for weeks and then you do the production. This is like, just go and hope 
everything works out. <laughs> but I was lucky because uh, Jenna Cannell, who plays Tara, you know, she has worked on several productions before that, and, and she was a stunt actress too. And so, because I, I had never really done a lot of fight scenes, and that was the first night where we I, it was me attacking Tara there in the garage, and now I was having to get on top of her and do horrible things to her. And I'm like, I was so nervous about hurting, you know, Jenna. And there's actually a moment that you see in in the in the in the, in the film where I, I it's, it's my my Plan Nine from Outer Space moment where I'm just like oh man, <laughs> and it's it's where I'm choking her and I'm basically force choking her because I, I, I was I thought we were doing just a from the face up shot and so I was just putting my hands there just don't to blame her. me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because we had done other shots where there were you know but where I was actually strangling her but for some reason or another they just weren't. A good shot or something like that. For good yeah. reason. He didn't want to kill the yeah. actress, so he yeah. he he, he, <laughs> he eased up a yeah. little too much. Yeah, but it's, I also remember like with her, she was like, uh, they wanted me to like you know put my thumbs on her eyeballs and start pressing in and stuff like that. I'm like, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't want to hurt her. I and can't do that. Yeah, and she's like, no, oh, go ahead and do it, do it, do it. It's, it gives me something to work on. If I if it's too much, I'll let you know. I'm like, are you sure? When you okay. hear, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. That's right, Brent. Oh, She's still got an eye. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's eyeball stuff freaks me out anyway because I've had eye surgeries and stuff like that. So it's, it's, I, anything that I've, like, is, like, broken arms and stuff like that I see in movies, those are the things that freak me out because it's stuff I can empathize with. Right. And so, yeah, it's like that's one of the first thing I'm doing is an eyeball thing. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. But it, it was great. It was a great team effort. And by the end of the, 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 the shoot, you know, you know, yeah, like when I'm having to like pull Samantha's hair when she's going through the door and stuff like that, I'm like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and she's like, give it to me. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> so you're saying you became hardened? I yeah. did, I did, I did, I did. It's, 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 and and I and, and I, I always say I'm probably the whiniest one on set too, because I have the boniest knees. And anytime like, okay, we got to get down the ground, I'm like, I gotta have knee pads. <laughs> it hurts, and like I, I always have to hand it to Damien. my. Yeah, it is true because I, I have Art to hand the diva it. the things you don't. I am know. such a diva. It's a I have to hand it to my female co-stars especially they all in both films are just the biggest ass kickers they don't whine like I do <laughs> <laughs> that's the funny part of it all I was like I'm, I'm the villain I'm like eh, it's cold you gotta put more blood on me but it's cold <laughs> and there's Lauren standing over there in basically a bikini in like 20 degree weather or Catherine hanging upside down naked in 20 degree weather and I'm like I'm like I'm cold it's like <laughs> So, Damien, a lot of people accuse horror filmmakers in particular of misogyny. Uh, and I know that has happened to you. Oh, sure. Well, let's talk about th that perception of, of how horror films are made and, and women as victim and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's, part, of the, it's part of the formula that, of film that I grew up just loving. First you're a child of the 80s and child you're making films 80s. inspired by the 80s. That's it. It's all about the final girl. Um, and I, I love that. I love seeing, I mean, it's, it's like, this is, it's like you got to walk on eggshells to even kind of talk about this stuff yeah. now. But I mean, I think it's more, it's more impactful because I think a woman's more vulnerable, just physically vulnerable. And you're rooting for her more. Uh, to, to survive at the end. If you, if you have, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger like fighting the predator, it's like, you know, you're, you know, you're all right. He's probably going to make <laughs> it out at the end. You know, it's not as, it's not as intense. It's not as scary, but um, it's just, again, it's just a, it's such a huge part of the genre. I love it. I love strong, powerful females. Like my favorite character of all time is Ripley from Aliens, from James Cameron's Aliens. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she's the victor. Yeah. 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 And, and she is strong as hell. Yeah, but it's, and it's also, but it's also not about her being a female. It's like they don't just like shove that down your throat right. the entire. It's never. She's never. Her gender's really never pointed it's out. It's not political the, at, at, yeah. at all. So, you know, I don't really look at it that way. I'm not a misogynist. I mean, I, again, I always say I was raised by all women, my entire family. So again, I I think I might even feel just closer because I think the idea of it's just so ridiculous that I don't mind doing truly horrible things to women right. in a movie because it couldn't be further from the truth. So I don't let things like that get to me. I don't have time to think about being a misogynist or anything like that. Fair enough. Yeah. 
And so, David, tell me about what it felt like being in costume for the first time on the first day of shoot. That was fun. That was a lot of fun in that regard. It's, it's, it was really cool seeing me as a, as a creature like that. Because I, I, I mean, I had done a lot of, you know, community theaters, stuff like that, so I would have makeup, but it was always just the painted on, nothing like prosthetics and stuff. But to see myself become this creature, that was, that was really exciting. I was having a lot of fun with that and taking pictures, all that kind of stuff. This is, this is real. This is real. This is actually, I'm actually doing a movie. And you're all costumed up, so that has to give you a sense of power being in character. It too. does. That's and that that goes just back to my stage days. I'm like I, I'm not one of those method actors where I have to be in character the whole entire time. It's like as soon as I'm in the costume and makeup, even when I was on stage doing plays, it's like I'd, everything just takes shape. It's like the posture changes, all that kind of stuff. It just I. I know where the, who the character is immediately. Well, I remember when I was doing Michael Jackson's Thriller, I was one of the zombies, and it was three hours to put on the makeup mm -hmm. and an hour to take it off. And I discovered how claustrophobic I am, and I yeah. would never do it again. Did you have to get a life cast, or did they put like a Yeah, they wow. had a life cast, and, uh, and that was tough. Then I found out from Rick Baker, who was doing the life cast, that Clint Eastwood couldn't do it either. So it was like, okay, we're all right. We're okay. Uh, those life casts can But be, tell me yeah. about that experience of, of being under prosthetic makeup for the first time. It was different because um, I, was, I became very self-conscious of certain things because, um, especially with that, that version of it, it's last one we were using the gelatin mask still. And my mouth would fall apart all the time because any little bit of moisture would just dissolve it. And, yeah. and the, the teeth, the, the prosthetic teeth I would wear would make me drool all the time. And then we'd be in cold location so my nose would run all the time too. So everything was falling apart. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's why you, you probably see some of these behind-the-scenes photos of me with Q-tips in my nose. <laughs> that was why. I was trying to keep my nose from running all the time into the makeup. But, but it, it would be one of those things where, you know, he's wanting me to do a big, huge smile. I'm, I'm afraid to right now because my, this is all going to go bleh and just fall apart. He's like, oh, we'll just throw more blood on it. It'll be fine. <laughs> It'll hide anything. Blood hides things. Yeah. I mean, you should be. We should have been using foam latex, but uh, because that will stand uh, all twelve hours on his face. I mean, that's the traditional. And that's the standard. Standard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, now it's all silicones and things, but um, but it's very toxic. It's very hard to make foam latex, and you need to bake it in an oven. And I just didn't have access to any of this, so gelatin's not toxic. You can uh, it might be a little toxic, but you could at least you can. <laughs> I don't know how safe it is. It's know. cow's yeah. hooves anyway. You know. That's but why you I can, went gray. But you could, uh, <laughs> they sell it in cubes, and you could just melt it in your microwave, and you can then just pour it into your molds, and it, you have a, a prosthetic in like a half an hour. You put it in your freezer or whatever, and if it doesn't come out good, you could remelt it, and just it's just so much easier. But the downside is that. It's like it's going to start falling apart around his mouth and stuff. If anything gets wet or humidity, it's going to start breaking down. So we'd always have to bring him back to the makeup room and I'd have to constantly be patching him up. So that was tough, but now I found an oven that I could put on my porch and bake foam latex. <laughs> so Terrifier becomes a word of mouth hit in a way that people watch it on the platforms and it's there in a way that doesn't make you rich. But having a success as an independent filmmaker means next time around, things are a little bit better. So here comes Terrifier 2, and tell me about the genesis of that, how, how that bounced off of the success of the first one. Yeah, so um, we were, again, so now we had, it grew in popularity big time. So it was easier to raise money this time. I mean, my producer, again, because he put up the money for the first time, he was going to put up like double the amount of money the second time around. And, you know, we were going to try and just make it the same way, more or less. Um, we'd spoken to other people about giving us money. And, but the, again, there's limitations that come, come along with it and just, you know, wanting to put handcuffs on you and it can't be this violent, you can't do this and that. And it's like, we'll just make it on our own again because we don't want to have all these eyes over us. Um, but when I was writing it, I wrote the, now have you seen part two, it's the, the clown cafe scene was really big. I was like, there's no way we can shoot this scene. I'm going to need more money. So I was like, let's do an Indiegogo campaign for this scene specifically. 
I'm like, at least, and then we'll, we'll raise some money. I'll be able to shoot it. So I asked for 50 grand on Indiegogo, and within a day, we hit $220,000. Well, there's your budget. And there's the budget. <laughs> I mean, and that was a big eye-opener because, again, the whole way, we didn't quite know what we had, how big this was. We knew it had gotten bigger. But when I saw that happen in one day, I was like, oh, my God. I was like, maybe we have something, like, really big here. Um, and thank God we raised that money because we would have never been able to shoot the movie we shot without that money. I mean, forget it. We were, I was living in a fantasy world, so to speak. But, um, but so then we shot the movie. And again, then trying to find distribution again, everybody's lowballing you. Nobody wants to give you any money up front or anything. Um, and it got to the point where we're like, you know what, we're just going to self-distribute this. And we were so close to self-distributing the movie. And this was so weird. While we were shooting the film, a sales agent had reached out to us uh, in our email. And I just always remembered. I just always kept her in the back of my mind. And we were so close to self-distributing. And I told Phil, I said, remember that woman that reached out? I said, why don't we just reach out to her and see if she could do anything? Maybe she can take it and bring it to some people. And she just, we did, and she was just so happening to go to the Cannes film market where they, it's basically like a convention like this where you just buy and sell movies. Uh, and she took it there, and she was shopping it around for a week. Again, there's some interest, a lot of low bowling, and we're like, listen, we know what this thing is. We're just hold, sticking to our guns. Like, we're going we're gonna to self-distribute if nobody comes in with an offer we're happy with. And of course, like on the last day she was there, this, the company now bloody disgusting. Now their the, their partner is Cineverse. That's what they're officially called now. Right. They said we love this movie. Like and they, they own Screenbox as yes. well. They saw it and they were like, they just got it. They knew what it was, and they said, where we want to use this movie to sort of be a springboard for Screenbox. They're trying to, they're, they were just trying to like kick that kick that off, and they said, you know. They made us such a, a great deal. Like, it was very respectful. They knew what it was, and we luckily we went with them, and it turned out to be a really big success. Well, the great thing is it not only was a good deal, but you got a theatrical out of it, and what, it turned yes. into a theatrical hit, which yeah. nobody anticipated. Quite nobody, nobody. Tell Quite me about opening night, uh, going to the theater and seeing it with an audience for the first time. It, it was pretty, it was pretty friggin' insane. And it, it, it took a while to sink in that we were seeing, what were you going to say? Oh, I, I just remember that night because we went to a showing on, in Staten Island. We just sat in the, the audience on opening night and like we're, we went to a bar afterwards and we just all of a sudden seen like Twitter just starting to explode. Yeah. We're like, what? Wow. <laughs> I mean, there's a, yeah, there's an AMC literally like two minutes away from my house and you go in there and uh, my apartment and you go in there and it's uh, they have the poster of Terrifier too, like in the, you know, the marquee in the lobby. And I'm like, this is like so, so surreal. Like they don't know I'm, I live, you know, a stone's throw away from the theater or anything like that. So, but again, like, again, and that's Cineverse. Like I wouldn't even imagined in a million years a theatrical release. You're talking uh, a sequel slasher that's, over two hours long, it's unrated. Uh, it's just these things don't really happen. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to really push to get this in theaters and we're going to put it in mainstream movie theaters and like 800 theaters or whatever. And I'm like, oh, this sounds great. I'm like, and I'll believe performed. it when I see it. Yeah. And then it just really, well, what happened was it, you know, we have just seriously, like you guys, we have like the amazing, an amazing fan base, just like the best. So like everybody who supported us from part one, like they all showed up to see it that weekend. But what happened was, is that reports started coming out that people were fainting and getting sick. And- Ah, uh, the these, exorcist complex. The exorcist. Uh, this is, but this is real. This, th these were real. Like everybody thought that it was sort of a marketing People were ploy. actually slipping on vomit on the way out. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the greatest thing I ever saw was that Sunday, I went to see it again with my DP in the city now in Manhattan. And we get in the lift and we're going back home and I'm going through Instagram and there is a picture, there's a tweet and the guy says, was just, <laughs> just in Terrifier, like just got out of Terrifier too. This is what's going on in the lobby. And it's, and it's a guy like sitting in a chair with an emoji blocking his face and like two paramedics coming in and, <laughs> and the Terrifier 2 poster like over his shoulder. And now that's a moment of pride. Moment of pride. I'm like, do you see this? And then someone else is like, just left Terrifier 2. Someone puked in the theater, and then there's like a shot of vomit on the floor. <laughs> and like, this 
real things. Like we, every, t- every con we're at, someone comes up to us and they tell us about their theatrical experience of someone leaving during the, uh, the hack, uh, alley bedroom scene or like someone getting sick or my friend passed out and hit his head that was another tweet that i saw my friend passed out in the theater cut his head and some guys like like doing this like blood <laughs> like ridiculous um but i mean listen i mean it is an unrated brutal movie so if you're getting casual horror fans who really never saw part one don't know what they're walking into and then you hit them with that bedroom scene in the middle it's pretty understandable like some people can't handle that especially now everybody's going in on edibles and they're getting high. You don't know what you're you're walking into. I would have a fucking panic attack watching that. But what about the brutality of it, you know? The the purpose behind that, you obviously want to exceed what has come before. Correct. And I'm all about exploiting. I happily uh, exploit the violence. An extremity. Yeah, for sure. I mean, part of it comes from being a makeup effects artist, doing the makeup, wanting to outdo my, uh, my, my prior work and wanting to show the audience things that they haven't seen before. And a lot of that came from when I was starting out and I needed to, you know, I needed someone to discover me. I needed somebody, I, I needed my work to stand out. And uh, my mindset's always, why is somebody going to talk about your movie or watch your movie when they can watch somebody else's or they can go and watch a Hollywood movie with a $100 million budget or something like that. So... I would put really shocking imagery and really terrible things in the movies, and even what Terrifier one in particular, the hacksaw scene. Everybody yes. who everybody who read the script, that was the first thing they because on paper that is the most generic, ridiculous killer clown movie. It's like you don't know it. It just there's nothing there. You're like even Art the Clown's not going to jump off of the page, but when you read the hacksaw scene, that's the first thing everybody would bring up to me when they read it. They're like, that's... Bring up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. They're like, are you really going to even... He said it to me after he read it. He goes, are you really going to... Well, you could tell when... You, yeah, yeah. When I was like, I, I thought that what was described there was just for, you know, our... Our, our, reading. Per, our reading pleasure. It's just like, okay, this is what we're supposed to be simulating, but we're not actually going to show that. I'm like, are we... At He's like, no, no, we're actually going to show all of that. I'm like, oh my God, we're going to change the game here because no one does that, especially in the past decade or so they have shied away from that kind of violence in these types of movies and I, I think that's why like slashers in the past decade or so have kind of gone on the wayside because people are too afraid to take the risks anymore with us and that's what the, that's why people love to go to slashers they love to see the over-the-top kills and stuff like that and yeah but that being said uh, that's not going to carry your film alone the whole right way. if there's no story if means. there's no character yeah. if it's just kill after kill yeah. It's Friday the 13th. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, but so thankfully, I mean, Art the Clown really carried part one. I mean, he was just, and we knew that we knew he was going to be the focal point. That was kind of a, I don't want like calling it a proof of concept movie, but it really was like, this is, the, you're, you're here to see this character. It's like, we're just throwing everything we have at the wall. And it's just like, will you accept, will you embrace this character? And, and that's really what it was. It was just him doing his thing. And we just wanted to leave an impression. Uh, and luckily it worked But the violence was a big part of that as well. But then going into part two, you know, I had to up my game. I had to grow as a, as a filmmaker and a, as a writer, especially, I mean, that was my main goal. And now I wanted to incorporate uh, a protagonist that the audience could really get behind. If I could get them rooting for her, because they, even though they love Art the Clown so much, then I knew that I really did a decent job, and that was, but that was the goal. It was really getting protagonists and heroes on board that you could empathize with by the end of the movie. So, well, it has been announced. <laughs> it has been announced that there is a Terrifier three coming. There is a Terrifier three. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Now, there have been a lot of Michael Myers, and there have been a lot of Jason Voorhees. Will you be returning as Art the Clown? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not giving this guy up. He's too much fun. I got still too much I want to do with him. And I'm sure that's mutual. Yes, um, yes. But Damien, George Romero had my the problem. My hero. One of my biggest heroes. The greatest. He could only make living dead movies that's all anybody would let him make and it gave him a great career and he made a few things other than that but they were not successful and nobody wanted to see him that way do you have any fear of being pigeonholed as the art the clown guy no 
I would be I right. would be absolutely honored if that's my my legacy. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I it, I'm so this whole experience is so surreal. We're so grateful to be in this situation. Um, and again, it's like George Romero, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, all those guys that I grew up absolutely loving. Right, like they they didn't admire slashers. Like they invented that genre. Right, they I'm sure they looked up to. Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, the Universal Classics, Hitchcock, like, yeah. Hitchcock, right? But me, I I admired those guys. I admired slashers. I I was in love with those movies. And then to kind of go full circle and now contribute, give something back in the same genre that I grew up loving, the same subgenre of slashers, is the most special thing imaginable. I mean, I was I was telling somebody yesterday that as a kid I was. Tommy Jarvis in Friday the 13th Part 4. Like, I was the little Corey Feldman kid to a T. I just wasn't, like, a tech wizard. But, like, my room was just all masks and model kits and everything. I was surrounded by that. So to be able to give back and give you guys some kind of pleasure and a little bit of escape with this character just means the world. So I would absolutely make killer clown movies for the rest of my life if that's all I can make. If it makes you guys happy, I would love to do it. You and the Kyoto brothers. That's right. (laughs) So what are your comfort food movies? What are the movies that you can watch over and over? If it comes on, you'll turn it on and leave it on all the way through. Oh, so many, so yeah. many. But I'm not just a horror fan by any means. I'm a movie fan. But, I mean, again, like I said, Jaws, The Lost Boys, uh, Godfather 1 and 2, I could watch anytime. Goodfellas, I love those. Rocky, uh, Return of the Living Dead. I watch oh, yeah. every time I'm on a plane, I watch Return of the Living Dead. Excellent. <laughs> right. How about you, David? Well, of course, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of mine. That's that's my all-time favorite movie, anyway. I, I just think it's a perfect film. It's just and some movie that can never be done today the way it was done back then no. and have the same kind of effect. Cell animation, yeah, it was just that. perfect. It was perfect. They would all rely on CG now instead of actually hand-drawn cell animation and puppeteering, and it's just oh, love that movie. I just go on for I could have a whole entire podcast about my love for that movie, but. But um, I, I'm a big, huge comedy guy, too, especially Mel Brooks movies or the classics like the, the Marx I got Brothers. to work with Mel when I wrote oh. The Fly, too. He was my producer. Oh, so. gosh. Yeah. He's, he's one of my... I actually got to briefly meet him a month into living in New York City, oh. and that was a, an amazing experience for me because... Wonderful I, man. Oh, my, it, it, this is, tells you how wonderful this man was because... I was in an audition for a tour of Fiddler on the Roof, and we were uh, having our audition in the room next door to where they were doing the read-through for Young Frankenstein, the musical. Uh. And they take a break, and so you see all these like great Broadway legends coming out, like you know uh, Roger Bart and Kristen Chenoweth, all these people, and you know Peter Boyle's right before he passed away, he comes out, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. It's like a month into living in New York, this is a kid from Alabama. I'm like, I can't believe all this going on here. <laughs> this is so cool. And then um, Mel Brooks comes out, and everybody else would just walk by as hi. He stopped and came up to every single one of us waiting in line for our audition and asked us our name and, you know, wish, you know, told us, you know, break a leg on our audition. And I'm like, that spoke volumes to me about his character that, you know, he, he, he was on his lunch break. He didn't have to do that. Yeah. He's Mel Brooks. But he, he, he just saw all these young artists out there. He, he wanted to wish us all the best on our auditions. And that just, that was an amazing, I couldn't talk. <laughs> I was just totally, I was just like, hi, David, hi, nice to meet you, I love you. Because yeah. <laughs> he's, he's my comedy god. It's like, it's, uh, he's who? created so many of my favorite. of course, you know, Young Frankenstein and um, um, Blazing Saddles is yeah. just one. That, that's a movie, if anytime that movie comes on, I am watching it. Uh, oh, or was, in, in the Pink Panther movies, I will yeah. watch it. Like Peter Sellers is just like, I love those movies. And they're movies you don't see anymore. Yep. They, no one makes it's those true. type of movies anymore, and I miss them. Wait, can I say, I, this is, I'm not just saying this to blow smoke. This is a true comfort film. I've mentioned this to you before. I, as you know, this guy's body of work is, is beyond astonishing. Right, have you guys ever seen Amazing Stories, the, the anthology from the 80s? All right. So if you like Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Dark Side, those, this was an anthology show produced by Spielberg, right? So he wrote one of the greatest episodes of any anthology ever. It's called Go to the Head of the Class, starring Christopher Lloyd. It's directed by Robert Zemeckis, right? Back to the Future, Forrest Gump. And it's about these 
two kids who want to put a spell on their sort of sadistic teacher, and it goes horribly awry. I won't say (laughs) what happens, but if you haven't seen it, you have to watch it. It is absolutely incredible. I watch it once a year on uh-huh. Halloween. That's very kind. I of really you. do. Thank it's you so amazing. Much. It's one of my favorite things ever. Well, we better wrap it up on that. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Damian Leone and David Howard Thornton. Oh, thank you. Thank it, you sir. It's just been such a pleasure. And thanks to the audience for joining us for this. Thank, thank you. you, guys. Thank you, Mix. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.